There's a new aspect to consider on the COVID nuclear connection. The spread of novel coronavirus within Navajo Nation has been disproportionate and staggering in the speed with which it has spread and its deadly impact on a vulnerable population. Its ferocity seems to come from out of nowhere, and it puzzled public health experts looking at it from a distance. But then you hear from a Navajo Nation member, someone already active in governmental, organizing, and environmental issues, and she tells you, Knowing the large population that we have dealing with rare cancers and with all of these pre-existing conditions as a result of generations of exposure through our water, our soil, and our food, and outright just direct exposure to these abandoned mines, that we were going to have an extreme public health crisis on our hands, greater than what other communities were already seeing. Well, when you hear the on-the-ground truth from Janine Yazi, linking uranium mining's deadly impact with Navajo Nation's vulnerability to COVID-19, you realize that there is yet another deadly aspect to that seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, one of the most powerful and meaningful interviews ever heard on Nuclear Hot Seat. Janine Yazi is a Navajo Nation's community organizer and human rights advocate who has worked on development and energy issues with indigenous communities across the United States and at the United Nations. She makes a crucial COVID-19 nuclear connection along with a report of what is actually happening on the front lines at Navajo Nation. And it's something you will not want to miss. We'll also have our regular international COVID-19 nuclear update, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than even Dan Rather's News and Guts website has yet covered. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday. May 26, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out with our COVID nuclear report. In Belarus, about 100 people at the construction site of a controversial nuclear power plant have become infected with the coronavirus. This according to the head of Rosatom, Russia's nuclear corporation. The plant, located near the Lithuanian border, had previously been locked down in an effort to limit the virus's spread. But a recent relaxation of distancing measures has led to an uptick in infections among the engineers and technicians working on bringing the plant online. 
The newly infected are a combination of local contractors and Rosatom engineers. In total, Rosatom has reported that 485 of its employees have been infected and 42 workers at the Smolensk nuclear power plant, located near the Russian border with Belarus, have taken ill after being exposed to the virus. Nevertheless, Rosatom on May 18 announced that it would be stepping down many of its virus restrictions and urging its employees back to work. In Brazil, lower demand for electricity and a currency slide during the coronavirus crisis will push completion of that country's third nuclear reactor into 2027. Brazil still plans to find a partner by 2023 to help finish and operate the long-delayed Angra 3 nuclear reactor, with companies in China, Russia, France, and South Korea among possible candidates. Construction began in 2010, and so the equivalent of $1.6 billion with the B dollars U.S. have been spent on the project. People in England are being told not to travel to Scotland under new coronavirus guidelines, But the first nuclear warhead convoy since lockdown passed through England and Scotland on Wednesday, May 13, while administrations of Scotland, Wales, and North Ireland are all sticking to the stay-at-home message, people from England should not be making trips to other parts of the UK, and this convoy defied that requirement, as well as being the most dangerous cargo on the roads. From Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, The latest Nuclear Regulatory Commission instant deregulation is to relax requalification of security background checks and fingerprinting for personnel licensed to buy, sell, and traffic Category 3 radioactive materials. Category 3 regards dangerous radioactive materials that, if diverted by bad guys, can be used in a radioactive dispersal device, in other words, a dirty bomb. Paul Gunter and Linda Pence Gunter also wrote an opinion piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer in which they went over the basics of what the NRC has done and not done in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. This includes the NRC relaxing nuclear power plant safety inspections and maintenance while allowing essential staff, including control room operators, security forces, and fire brigades to work longer and exhausting shifts, up to 86-hour work weeks for two weeks straight. The NRC insists that this extension of working hours is justified due to absenteeism, workers in quarantine, and Centers for Disease Control guidelines for the COVID pandemic, which recommend social distancing, necessitating fewer staff on site. Yet at the same time, the NRC is allowing nuclear power plants to proceed with refueling operations, which can bring in as many as 1,800 workers from across the country to a single site. Asking workers to put in exhausting shifts not only weakens their immune systems, making them more susceptible to the coronavirus, but could also lead to fatigue-driven errors at a nuclear power plant. In Michigan, Two dam failures and catastrophic flooding in the central part of the state also prompted notification of an unusual event to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, an unusual event being step one on a four-step identification process to kiss your posterior goodbye. That's because the floodwaters inundated 
a Dow chemical facility that uses a nuclear research reactor. While the reactor is being categorized in mainstream media as tiny, as though that makes any difference, the op-ed piece highlights how the risks to Superfund and other toxic cleanup sites posed by the effects of climate change includes more frequent and severe flooding. And a federal report published last year found that 60% of Superfund sites overseen by the Environmental Protection Agency, more than 900 toxic sites countrywide, are in areas that may be affected by flooding or wildfires, both hazards that may be exacerbated by climate change. Add to that the COVID pandemic, and it shows how unprepared we are as a country to deal with a nuclear or other Superfund disaster. Good news out of Los Angeles. The U.S. Department of Energy agreed on Tuesday, May 20th, to remove 10 contaminated buildings at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory in the hills above the San Fernando and Simi Valleys that was used during the Cold War to test rocket systems and nuclear reactors. It was the site of the start of the Woolsey Fire in Los Angeles in 2018 where radioactivity in the ground and vegetation was re-released in smoke and re-aerosolized into the environment. In Nevada, on Friday, May 15, the 6.5 earthquake that shook the area had an epicenter about 100 miles away from the proposed Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository. The safety of Yucca Mountain has been debated for nearly 40 years, and this is yet another piece of the argument against even considering it as a permanent, high-level nuclear waste repository. The Trump administration has announced that it will withdraw from another major international arms control deal, the Open Skies Treaty, which the George H.W. Bush administration signed in 1992. The deal allows for the United States, Russia, and 33 other countries to fly unarmed observation aircraft over the other's territory to help reduce the risk of war. Well, last year, Trump also withdrew from the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia, which was a major piece of protecting the world, and specifically Europe, from the dangers of nuclear war. The drumbeat for nuclear war continues because the Trump administration has now begun discussing conducting the first U.S. nuclear test since 1992. Now on Thursday, May 21st, well, let me put it to you this way. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's on the week. On Thursday, May 21st, Trump's arms control negotiator, Marshall Billingsley, criticized Russia and China and warned that the United States is prepared to outspend anyone in a new nuclear arms race. Billingsley said, we know how to win these races and we know how to spend the adversary into oblivion. And if we have to, we will. Yeah, that's what we know all about. Spending money to create weapons that will destroy people, the environment, the planet, and all life. This administration knows how to spend, 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 spend on things that will damage us. But where's the money for COVID relief? 
Where's the money for the protective equipment that our frontline nurses and doctors need to wear in order to do the work that they are committed to doing in order to save lives? But no. What this administration wants to do is to spend its adversaries into oblivion, like we're some kind of a game show with a prize at the end. This is evil, numbnuts. And that's why Marshall Billingsley, who stands for the Trump administration, which cancels treaties and wants to spend our adversaries into oblivion in a new nuclear arms race, all of you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, numbnuts of the week. In the Netherlands, Dutch emergency services battled a fire at an abandoned nuclear plant only 100 kilometers or 62 miles from Amsterdam. The facility has been out of service since 1997, but is not expected to be dismantled until 2045, when radiation at the site drops to safe levels. Still, while officials said that there was no immediate danger of radioactive fallout, it's never immediate, it takes time to show up, Police have told local residents to remain indoors, lock all doors and windows, and cut off any ventilation systems to avoid exposure to the fumes and anything else that might be in them. In Finland, that country's long-delayed Olkiyoko 3 nuclear reactor was hit with another setback after the nation's safety watchdog reported valve problems in a component involved in the cooling process. The reactor was originally due to be completed in 2009, and now the coronavirus pandemic will delay fuel loading from a planned July schedule, possibly pushing back the November start date, possibly beyond. In South Korea, the Wolseong nuclear reactors are at risk of a shutdown because of a shortage of space to store spent nuclear fuel. Sounds familiar, only we in the U.S. don't shut them down, we just keep making more of the stuff. Temporary storage at Walseong, which is about 300 kilometers or 240 miles southeast of Seoul, are now 97.6% saturated and will be fully saturated by March of 2022. Failure to begin construction to add storage facilities within the next 100 days would lead to total shutdown of the Walseong 2, 3, and 4 reactors. In Russia, the academic Lomonsov one-of-a-kind floating nuclear power plant is now fully commissioned. What could go wrong? And out of Australia, an editorial in the Canberra Times reminds us that as we wait for a vaccine, there is another global threat we could address today, and that is there are 14,000 nuclear weapons currently in existence, serving no purpose except to terrify other human beings around the globe, and that their risks do not go away simply by being ignored. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, there is no end to the COVID nuclear connection. The nuclear industry continues to take COVID-19 risks with the health and safety of its workers, which puts all of us at risk for facing a nuclear accident as a result. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission continues to hide COVID statistics at nuclear sites because, hey, if you don't have the numbers, you can't prove anything. And as you will hear from today's interview, there are long-standing radiation exposure risks to health and safety that increase vulnerability to this virus. That 
is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We look at the nuclear aspect of our world every week, and especially now, with the coronavirus wrecking havoc. You're not going to be getting this information from mainstream media. Nuclear Hot Seat is the only place you can count on to continue to report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth about the COVID nuclear connection while not dropping the ball on other nuclear stories around the world. But I've got to be honest. Since COVID hit, things have been challenging, and I need your help to keep the show going. The fees for the tools necessary to produce, host, post, and disseminate each episode do not go away. And to keep Nuclear Hot Seat running, now more than ever, we need your help. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. We make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And to send us a monthly $5, the same as we used to be able to pay for a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S., click on the big green donate button. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Janine Yazi is a Navajo Nation community organizer and human rights advocate who has worked on development and energy issues with indigenous communities across the United States. Among her long list of positions, she is Sustainable Development Program Coordinator for International Indian Treaty Council and the Council's representative as co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group of the United Nations High-Level Political Forum on the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Janine is now on the front lines of Navajo Nation's battle for the lives of its people against the COVID virus. We spoke on Friday, May 22, 2020. Janine Yazi, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. We know that there are major COVID issues on Navajo Nation, and we will get to that. But in starting out, let's learn a little bit about you. What is your background, and how did you come to focus on uranium mining issues for Navajo Nation? My background is in international politics and human rights, and I work locally, nationally, and internationally on human rights issues affecting Indigenous peoples. As such, I am the Sustainable Development Coordinator for International Indian Treaty Council, and I represent them as a co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group for Sustainable Development, which engages with the high-level political forum of the United Nations. And I've also been working as an entrepreneur on the Navajo Nation, where I started a business in sustainable community development. And the majority of my work is looking at rights-based approaches in development and sustainability and in exercising sovereignty, addressing the water energy nexus. And so uh, in an era of climate change, this requires us to build robust strategies that take a comprehensive and holistic approach at the issues and impacts on the ground. This has always been really important for me my communities were heavily impacted by the 1979 Church Rock uranium mill tilling spill. And so I grew up very aware of the way that this dramatically impacted our communities, our ways of life, and our ways of subsisting and living off of the land. 
It also led to the emergence of several public health issues, such as prevalence of cardiovascular disease, rare cancers, and other immunodeficiencies affecting our population and our relatives. So as a result of that, uh, I knew that I was always going to work to seek justice for communities that are disproportionately impacted by extractive energy and unsustainable development. And being the generation that's growing up with a consciousness of climate change and how that impacts all of us, I really felt that the best way to do that was to take a human rights-based approach to understanding the issues and developing the solutions that our communities need. Explain for our listeners who might not be as familiar as you and I are, what are more specifically the issues? What has been so difficult about dealing with the uranium exposure on Navajo Nation? So right now, we really don't have the technology needed to address the issue of contamination and cleanup. And with my communities in particular, we were never identified as communities that even needed help to deal with the contamination of uranium because we're outside 10-mile proximity from an existing mine or mill site. As a result, the contamination from discharge and from the, the Church Rock uranium mill tilling spill, which affected our groundwater aquifers, as well as the runoff, as well as the soils and the vegetation surrounding our communities, aren't addressed in any current cleanup plans because of the way that Superfund sites have been designated and are addressed. It's enormously complicated, especially since so much of the contamination was created by corporations that no longer exist. So corporate accountability is near impossible, but also because the burden of proving the contamination and showing how it's impacting our communities is often pit on our shoulders. So part of the work that we did when I co-founded the Little Colorado River Chapters Watershed Project, partnered with Dr. Tommy Rock out of Northern Arizona University to train community members in how to appropriately conduct water testing along our communities. And through that project, we were able to prove the continued existence of contamination in several public water resources, one of which was serving the elementary, middle school, and um, some private residents in Sanders, Arizona. And other contamination existed in community wells that were used for both domestic use as well as livestock use. And so that was an enormous finding that validated all of the lived experiences that our communities already had and the knowledge that our communities already had about the true impacts to our communities, particularly our public health and the way that was impacting our children and our young adults. But the fingerprinting and the actual identifying where this contamination comes from is a completely different research project. And to date, it's been about four years since we concluded our community watershed testing project. And to date, it's been next to impossible to find the appropriate funding that understands how important this research is for getting justice for our communities. So we've been having a really difficult time finding the funding needed to continue on that work. 
and a lot of this is political. A lot of this is because people don't realize that energy corporations and political agendas largely dictate what funds and resources are available to actually address these issues. There's always a layer of protection for people in power because they are the ones that are ultimately responsible for the continued negligence that is endangering our communities and costing lives. And so there are real barriers to creating the type of precedent and legal mechanisms necessary to actually bring justice and remediation to all communities that are impacted by uranium mining, especially in times like now with President number 45 being in power, when we're under a federal administration that is looking to increase domestic uranium production and domestic uranium stockpiles, getting any coverage over the legacy of the issues that we're dealing with is wildly unpopular and dangerous to the interests that are there. And so it's entrenched power, it's entrenched in systemic injustice, and it's the continued erasure of the history and exploitation of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities in this nation. Give the listeners a sense of how many sites we are talking about here, the unremediated uranium mines, in addition to the devastating disaster at Church Rock with the uranium tailings pond spill. There are just a little over 500 abandoned uranium mines that have been identified and prioritized for cleanup, but there are over a thousand more riddled across our territories that either do not meet certain specifications or are just too much to include in the recent settlement that was slated specifically to help clean up these mining sites. And so, like I said earlier, there really is no effective technology to clean up the uranium contamination once it's circulating in our environment. And we've had several studies led by some wonderful partners and expert groups who have demonstrated the true impact on people and on families. An example of that is the Navajo birth cohort study, of which I was a participant when I was pregnant with my daughter. And their findings showed that the environmental exposure to pregnant women is at such a level that it can be passed through the uterus. And we are seeing children being born into this world with uranium in their bodies, the equivalent level of adult male mind workers. And so when I say there's no technology to clean it, obviously there's absolutely no technology to extract this contamination out of the bodies of our children. And when we're carrying female children, their embryos are fully developed before they are born. And so immediately you're seeing the impact to two generations of our people as a result of this exposure. You know, talking about the complexities around cleanup and the legacy and how deeply it impacts people obviously does not serve the interests of the energy corporations or the politicians that support them because this is scary stuff, which still does not have a solution. And so why would anyone in their right mind support or buy into the argument that uranium and nuclear energy is a source of clean power when they're not incorporating into these models the true costs of the contamination or the impacts that result from mining and from digging up this uranium and throughout the whole nuclear fuel chain cycle, all of the ways that this negatively impacts people and planet. 
It's just not in their interest to do that. We've talked with Dr. Johnny Lewis about the Navajo birth cohort study, and I have done other programming about church rock, and it's horrific to think about what that has done in terms of the DNA in future generations. But you spoke about a recent settlement that the government came to. Can you explain about that and whether that bears any weight or whether it is yet another governmental nuclear fiction? Our government received, I'm forgetting the numbers right now because I have a lot of numbers in my head from all of our relief efforts and the COVID issues that we're dealing with, which I know we'll talk about later. But we received a sizable amount of funds as a result of a lawsuit to address the abandoned uranium mines across our nation. And as a result, these funds that were awarded, quote unquote, were used to set up the Office of Abandoned Uranium Mines and the Navajo Nation to identify and prioritize abandoned mines for cleanup. And it's been, I think, seven years so far. I mean, who knows about time these days, but it's been about seven years since we actually got access to those funds. And so far, all we've had were proposals put forward for five-year cleanup plans that get renewed every five years. (laughs) And not the only places that have been remediated, the best practice for remediated sites is to pit just three inches of soil on top of it and hope that it doesn't erode and hope that they'll maintain surveillance of these sites to make sure that the topsoil is not blowing off or otherwise being lost to the watershed and then re-exposing the contaminated soil underneath. Another way that they're cleaning things is to dig it up and move it into someone else's backyard, which is most often another indigenous community or another Navajo community. And so those are the two primary ways, and they're both extremely expensive to move that much earth and to like continue to remediate these sites. But it's not a long-term solution. You know, like over time, these sites and like their coverings are whatever ways they've thought to um, remediate ends up eroding or ends up uh, being compromised just due to natural processes. And so a lot of the money has been not wisely spent and not effective in how it's spent. But the Navajo Nation Office of Abandoned Uranium Mines does have the nicest building on the Navajo Nation in terms of a (laughs) facility to work in. So I guess there's that. But a lot of the funding was also supposed to go to helping families of minors that were impacted or that lost their lives as a result of exposure to the contamination. And part of that is through the RICA bill. One of the challenges we've also faced in terms of accessing those funds is that there are strict regulations and requirements that families have to meet in order to even qualify. And a lot of the descendants are left out of those settlements because their loved one passed away already. And with them, they lost valuable documentation that's required for them to be able to access those funds to help their families, despite the fact that they themselves as a second generation that's been exposed to this, may also be experiencing the same health impacts that took their loved ones to begin with. And so the challenges are just, they're so enormous and they're ongoing. And 
in the midst of still fighting to get justice for a lot of these impacts, we're still having to keep our hand on the pulse of the nation, which has continued to work towards reopening uh, uranium mining operations in our country. And the largest deposits of uranium are in the Southwest United States surrounding our homelands. And this is uranium that we don't need because we have such a big stockpile of it. Isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, corporate interests has a very strong sway on federal policy and what investments are made literally for the benefit of a few elite that will get massively rich off of this. Moving this forward a little bit, before COVID descended, you were already dealing with these issues. What impact has the pandemic had on either cleanup or the issues that you're dealing with families who have been hurt by the uranium mining? Or has COVID just wiped all of that away and that is the focus for now? Well, a lot of the work that we're doing beforehand already made us hyperly aware that our communities were going to be particularly vulnerable just because of what we already knew at the time about the impacts of COVID, such as how it was disproportionately affecting people with pre-existing conditions, people with immunodeficiencies, and people who were otherwise already dealing with very challenging health issues prior to to this virus coming into communities. And so that made us very worried and scared for our people, knowing through, and I remember what RICA stands for, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, but knowing through work like that, just the large population that we have dealing with rare cancers and with all of these pre-existing conditions as a result of generations of exposure through our water, our soil, and our food, and outright just direct exposure to these abandoned mines, that we were going to have an extreme public health crisis on our hands, greater than what other communities were already seeing. And so we started organizing prior to the first case of COVID being confirmed on the Navajo Nation because of that awareness. But other systemic issues, such as lack of access to healthcare facilities, lack of access to specialized care, the ongoing barriers that were already present for people trying to get dialysis or chemotherapy, who have to travel hours away from the reservation to go to one of the major cities in order to get that treatment. We know there was just multiple pathways of possible exposure that we're we're not only going to um, make it hard to keep our nation isolated and insulated from the spread of the virus, but that once it was here, was going to allow it to spread like wildfire throughout our communities. And so we've had our hands full in trying to develop appropriate relief efforts to help keep our most vulnerable households safe. But early on, we knew that part of what we could do to help stem the curve and protect our vulnerable populations was by helping get the resources that we knew most of our households lacked in terms of being able to stockpile food and water and other necessary supplies for two-week intervals so that people could stay isolated and wouldn't be as dependent upon going to areas with high rates of exposure or high possibilities of exposure. 
but in the midst of that, the systemic challenges made by lack of critical infrastructure, such as lack of access to internet and broadband, lack of paved roads, lack of access to healthcare facilities, all of these made it very difficult for us to roll out that relief effort quickly enough to keep people safe. It creates an ongoing challenge for our continued response, both as a tribal government and as grassroots organizations, because people have no choice but to leave and try to get service or try to go get supplies that they need or try to get water because our water systems are contaminated here in our nation because of uranium mining. And in order to be able to do something as simple as wash your hands for 20 seconds every couple of hours or every time that you've touched things a lot, all of those barriers have helped compound a lot of the challenges that we face in getting getting our people safe and allowing them to help maintain the social distancing and self-isolation practices that are really critical to keep stopping the spread of this virus in our communities. How helpful, I might put that word in quotes, has the federal government been in you maintaining this supply of materials and health care and water and all the rest that you need for your people? Not helpful at all. In fact, it really feels like they're actively trying to kill kill our people. And, you know, like, I don't say that lightly, but with all of the quote unquote stimulus funds like that have been allocated specifically to our nation, which is in the amount of 600 million, our nation still has not had the ability to access it. I think they only two, three days ago did they finally get direct access. This is two, three months after we already knew this was going to be a threat to our nation and to our communities. This is you know, months after we were already being profiled and highlighted as having an endemic that was on par with the outbreaks in New York and New Jersey. Uh, And now we're number one. Now we, we have the most rates per capita in the country. And on top of all of this and the lack of access to these funds to our healthcare facilities, to our tribal government and to the people that really needed it, you see instances like Trump gifting our nation with Abbott tests, which have been shown to have a high percentage of false negatives. And after they knew, after there was already research being done to show the ineffectiveness of this test, they still gave this to our nation to use for testing our population. On top of that, approving a contractor, a newly formed company to supply our Indian Health Service facilities with masks that don't meet CDC guidelines, masks that are from manufacturers that aren't safe to protect our people from the virus and that can't be used. On top of donating and bringing in ventilators that our hospitals couldn't use because they were either out of date or they weren't right for, they did not have the right technological components to help the hospitals actually use those ventilators on our population. You know, when the COVID first started on our nation too, we had zero access to any tests despite the nation 
already being on high alert and already knowing the importance of testing to be able to identify and stem outbreaks before they get out of control. And so when our first test, when our first case was here, everyone was already organizing and already hyper aware of the vulnerabilities and the need. And we did not know that our hospitals did not have the capacity to test yet when the majority of the nation was already grappling with this around us. And so um, with the first cases, they had to be shipped to Phoenix, Arizona from their communities, which is like five, six hours away from their communities in order to receive the tests that they need. So there was a period where people weren't getting tested at all because of the inaccessibility of it. And so all of these things, and you know, like some of them could be, you know, just bureaucratic political mistakes, but some of them are outright criminal negligence in terms of what was done with the mask and the ventilators and the the faulty tests. And the federal government needs to be held accountable for that negligence because that costs real lives, real valuable and precious and meaningful lives that wouldn't have had to been lost um, if we had the appropriate resources to help our loved ones. I'm sorry. I I lost a um, no. That's a dear friend. Oh. I lost a dear friend to this um, because she couldn't have access to the testing that she needed, and um, because she was still called to serve community, even though she had asthma, which is a pre-existing condition. Um, and as a result, her five children no longer have their mother. So there's not a single one of us that has not been impacted by a loss in our communities. And each loss is, is, is so much. It's so great. I'm very sorry for your loss, for so many losses within your community and the devastation that is going on. And it seems clear from what you're saying and my own research as well, that our government is engaged in a game of creating an image of helping without providing the substance of helping in the way that is actually going to have a chance to make a difference. Yes. Given all of the limitations and difficulties that you're facing now, where are you focusing your actions and where is Navajo Nation focusing to try and do the most good? Well, I can't speak for the tribe, but they've been engaging in some forms of uh, food distribution for relief. But our group has really been focused on identifying and addressing dangerous gaps and response efforts. And so as a result, we are highly mobilized to bring two weeks worth of supplies and and necessary goods to households so that they don't have to go hungry or go thirsty or be desperate enough to have to leave their home in order to feed their loved ones. But we are also working with healthcare facilities and frontline workers to get them appropriate PPE so that they can be protected while they're out doing what they need to do to serve our communities and to keep people safe. And a lot of that has required us to be flexible and to also address the gaps in tribal response because our tribal governments, you know, like we've been operating under generations of federal Indian law that really limits the exercise of real sovereignty and self-determination. And so a lot of people don't realize that the challenges that our tribal governments face 
are structural, they're purposeful, they're intentional, and they're meant to keep our governments from being self-sufficient and self-reliant. And so as a result, as grassroots organizers, we have the double challenge of not only having to address and be aware of the gaps in federal response, but also having to be very aware of the real limitations that our tribal government has as well. And so we have to uh, operate within those gaps in order to ensure that everything we do can help streamline and speed up effective response at every level, from the community level to our healthcare facilities. And in doing this, our focus started off first with protecting vulnerable households and providing them with food and services. But now we're branching out first to PPE and now to actually looking at getting other forms of donations to our communities, such as solar run washers. And it's like a lot of people, you know, like there's just things that have come up in the experience of this and realizing what other aspects that make our, our households vulnerable. One of them is access to laundry services. And when we don't have running water and our homes for basic plumbing, we obviously don't have running water to be able to wash our own clothes. And so just basic hygiene would require people to go to border towns where they're at high vulnerability of being exposed and bringing this virus back to their households. So we're looking at other aspects of setting up homes without electricity and water with alternative solutions, such as rainwater catchment systems, solar generators that can power small devices, that can power refrigerators so that they can store fresh produce and food for two weeks and other things such as rechargeable solar powered phone chargers because we are seeing like everywhere else that due to isolation there is an increased risk of other social issues such as domestic violence and child abuse and so we need to find ways to help bring resources that people no longer have access to because we have to self-quarantine and stay at home in areas that lack internet our phone service electricity and running water so it's been very overwhelming at times, but also very inspiring to see just the caliber of experts and professionals that our nation has that have come together to be able to provide that experience and that expertise to create such an organic, robust, comprehensive approach to providing relief for our communities. And I think that in this experience, what has been most powerful is just recognizing that we can be the answer to the changes that our communities need. And that we, as much as, and as infuriating as it is, what the federal government has done or not done in terms of response and enabling access to critical resources, that we can exercise our own self-determination by mobilizing together collectively to take care of one another in our communities and that we can use that as a foundation of strength to push for the structural changes that need to occur in our recovery effort. One of the things that has hit the media and been quite prevalent is the nature of the international response that has come to Navajo Nation, and also that of individuals stepping up, specifically those in the entertainment industry and the like, who are doing what they can to support. What has it been like to receive that level of support? 
it's been really wonderful because all of those all of those layers of support are the result of our own people using whatever connections and networks and relationships that they've built over the years and over their careers to bring resources into our community at a time when the federal government and the, even even sometimes the state governments have severely fallen short. For example, we have created a very strong relationship with the Irish nation uh, as a result of them finding out about our efforts and our situation through Aaron Yazi, a Navajo citizen, a young man that had many relationships with people from Iris. So when he sent out a tweet in support of our efforts, that got picked up by an Irish journalist that he was in connection with. And that from there just led to a flood of donations coming in from Ireland as part of their tribute to repaying the generosity of the Choctaw Nation who donated to Ireland to help address the issues created by the potato famine. And so like to see that come full circle and to see those relationships really come together at this time has really shown that not only are we capable of restoring and building relationships for ourselves for self-determination and self-sufficiency, but we really are living in a time where we can create these relationships across nations to bring in rights-based approaches to relief, to bring in true compassionate acts of solidarity that help create the social net and the resources necessary to protect our most vulnerable. And the same has been done with all of uh, these actors and these famous individuals who have been lending their voices and their platforms and their support to our people. All of those are as a result of our own citizens having broken through and into these industries to build those networks and those relationships and not just resting on their success, actually mobilizing those relationships in order to give back and give to people who uh, really need these, these resources and this platform for their voices. What can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to support you in your efforts? Where can we go? How can we be most effective on your behalf? I would definitely stay on track with our efforts, share our efforts through all of your social media platforms. You can find links to our social media pages, our volunteer forms, our GoFundMe and our donation forms, and even our requests for support through our website, NavajoHopiSolidarity.org. We also have a Facebook page, an Instagram account, and a Twitter account. But even beyond that, you know, we're, we're taking care of ourselves. We need more support and to for people to help us spread the word and stay on track with not only how we're responding and helping us with those efforts, but also really upholding the solutions that are coming forward to, to really address these systemic issues because we're going to need support and post-recovery in advocating and building regenerative and restorative economies that don't continue these systemic injustices that made us vulnerable to this pandemic in the first place. But also 
especially with your audience. We need help staying on top of this federal administration's push to reopen uranium mining on our tribal territories and the Grand Canyon and along the Grant's uranium mineral belt. You know, these are our communities and these are our loved ones, our families that are going to be heavily impacted by the continuation of those operations. And so as we have our hands full right now dealing with how COVID is and creating like this this crisis in our communities and across our nation. We need those that aren't on the front lines of this virus to spend that time and energy staying on top of our federal government and pushing back against these attempts to reopen uranium mining in our communities because we have our hands full right now just trying to protect and save our communities. And so any help in that regard would also be phenomenal in ensuring that while we get a hold of this virus and its spread that we don't end up looking up and finding ourselves surrounded by more uranium mines coming into action. Of course, send me those links. They will be up on this episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, number 466, and people will be able to link to them, make donations, take the steps that you ask them to take. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share right now? Just that this is a very important moment for us, for all of our communities, to learn from all of the systemic injustices that have disproportionately made poor Black and Brown and immigrant communities especially vulnerable to this crisis, and to use any of the funding that is being brought down by the federal government and made available to our states to create the type of structures, economies, health systems, education systems that our people really deserve and that will ensure equity and justice and peace in a post-COVID society. We will do everything in our power to help you. Janine, my heart is with you and your people, and I'm certain I can say that for the other listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. And I thank you for taking time out at a very busy and a very stressed time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. Anything we can do to help bring light to the situation that we're facing and also the root causes of our vulnerabilities is extremely important. So I'm very grateful for you taking time to invite us onto your show. Anytime. Janine Yassi of Navajo Nation. The information on how to connect with the relief effort for Navajo Nation can be found on the website NavajoHopeSolidarity.org. Of course, there will be links up to that and all of the relevant pages that Janine provided on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 466. A reminder that sentencing of the Kings Bay Plowshares 7, the faith-based activist who committed a nonviolent break-in at the Kings Bay Trident Nuclear Submarine Base in 2018 to protest nuclear weapons and war, the sentencing is now set for June 8, 28, and 29 for the seven defendants. For background, Visit our interview with defendants Patrick McNeil and Elizabeth McAllister, who is the widow of Philip Berrigan, on Nuclear Hot Seat number 452 from February 18, 2020. And it looks like last week's call that I put out on the show to contact Rachel Maddow with the nuclear COVID information has made an impact. 
On her May 22nd show, during a roundup of COVID outbreaks, Maddow included information on the Vogel nuclear build in Georgia. It's a start, so let's keep it going. You can email her your COVID nuclear information or just your nuclear information to rachel at msnbc.com. It's an open door and they will read it. I've already put her on the mailing list for each week's nuclear hot seat and have been sending her a pitch email every week on some aspect of this issue. Please add your voice to urge her to cover the nuclear aspect of this pandemic and send it out to other news reporters as well. But she at least has made herself available. And a heads up that in two weeks, Nuclear Hot Seat will hit its ninth anniversary show. All your good wishes are graciously accepted. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 26, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, miningawareness.wordpress.com, bologna.org, inquirer.com, Reuters.com, dailynews.com, agu.org, king5.com, power-technology.com, theguardian.com, democracynow.org, sciencemag.org, washingtonpost.com, abolition2000.org, motherjones.com, rt.com, swissinfo.ch.eng, Reuters, pulsenews.co.kr, CanaberraTimes.com, the sole compromised cubicle drones who write press releases for World Nuclear News, and the fatally compromised slaves to the nuclear industry at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, or just cut to the chase, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, and in the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name, and your email address. We will send you one email a week with the link to the show as soon as it is made available. Thanks to all of you for listening and for joining with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. Oh, and if you haven't done it already, go to the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it. All of it helps build visibility of these issues and gets the information out into the world. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, especially in these COVID times, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really be grateful for your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, what you don't know can hurt you. And chances are, it already has. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear.
nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.